Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Our guest tonight is an expert in Islamic history, as well as doctrine, and he's the author of several books detailing some of the most important battles between the Christian West and Islam, as well as revealing the real message of jihad that is found in the Quran, as well as the writings of jihadist leaders. His newest book spotlights several saints and sinners who heroically defended the Christian world from Islamic invasion and subjugation. So please welcome the author of Defenders of the West, the Christian heroes who stood against Islam. Our guest is Mr. Raymond Ibrahim. Raymond, hello, Father. Welcome. Mitch. Thank Good you. Good to see you. Great to be with you. So our audience understands you. You're born here in the States, yes. but your family is from Egypt. Uh, Egypt. Correct. Uh, North Africa. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my father was stationed there right at the end of the war Amazing. in Cairo. You know, he, that's, he came back home from there. And uh, I've been a number of times. I, I love Egypt. It's a great, great place uh, for so many reasons. It's, it's delightful, delightful. Mm -hmm. And your family is Coptic Christian. Correct. And so, you know, your family has long, long uh, history in the, uh, Egypt. Um, you know, I always point out to folks, when you see the Copts and then look at the statues of the pharaohs, you say, mm, these are the same people. Yeah. You know, They're the you most can, native people of Egypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they have been there a long time. And Egypt has been a Christian country, became a Christian country back in the 4th century. Oh, earlier. It's believed uh, to have been evangelized by St. Mark. St. Mark. But I mean in terms of uh, becoming a predominantly Christian country. Yeah, overwhelmingly, I would say, probably in the 200s. I mean, you mm -hmm. already had Origin sure, in the 150s, sure, sure. 180s. Large. Um, Clement before him mm -hmm. of Alexandria. So it definitely has a, a, a rich tradition, his, uh, Christian tradition, which most people, of course, are unaware of because when they think of Egypt or any of these Middle Eastern countries, they immediately think of Islam, yeah. rightfully so, but they don't understand the historical backdrop, which is that right. places like Egypt and Syria and Asia Minor and all of North Africa, that's where most of the saints and doctors of the church even come from, you know, Augustine yeah. from Hippo and Alexandria, you had the, all these uh, Saint luminaries. Saint from Carthage. Everywhere. Um, so they forget, and you had these basically these five seas, Rome in the west, and then all these major centers, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, later Constantinople. Um, so I just find it interesting that most people, when I tell someone I'm a, I'm a copt from Egypt, they, the question I usually get. When did your get, family convert? With that, and if it's, well, that's for the ones Saint who understand Mark. what that means. <laughs> yeah. But for most people, they ask me when I say I'm a copt, well, which precinct I work at. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that's okay. It just it just shows the you know, the oblivion of that the history of that region, which is you know, more's the pity. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a very important uh, culture for Christian history, uh, but it was conquered 
by Muslims in what, five, uh, 641? Yeah, Egypt is in 641, and a little before that, Syria, you have after the Battle right. of Yarmouk in 636, uh, Jerusalem gets conquered around 637, Yes. and then it becomes like dominoes. The Muslim armies sweep through the rest of uh, North Africa all the way until they basically, I think, conquer uh, what, what we call Morocco today, Al Maghreb, in 791, um, uh, sorry, 691. And Carthage, of course, is conquered in, in the middle of that. And mm -hmm. by 711, they're now on European soil. They've invaded Spain and conquered Spain. And uh, by 732, they're in the heart of France. Uh, and that's where the, the famous Battle of Tours is waged with Charles the Hammer Martel. And he halts them there. Uh, but it continues going on that the jihad and the violence against Christian Europe um, is now mostly confined to the Iberian Peninsula, okay, where it stays for centuries. And, but the point is, and I think uh, the most important point to get to p viewers who are not aware of this, is that this, this sort of jihad warfare on Christendom was century after century after century. When we talk about um, historical military conflicts between Christendom and Islam in the West, invariably it begins with the Crusades, as if that's point one, and before that everything was peace. And there's so many uh, secular historians and academics who actually literally say that. Um, John Esposito, for example, a professor at, U at Georgetown University, which I attended, has a book where he writes four centuries of peace elapsed between Islam and the Christian West until a papal play led to the atrocities of the Crusades and so forth. And it's presented in a paradigm as if these random crusaders, it's racist, of course, they went to the Holy Land to, uh, to, to colonize it and to, you know, plunder. And, or and, the other narrative that you, uh, I frequently mm -hmm. hear is the Crusaders went over there to try to force Muslims to become Christian. Right, right. That wasn't the case. That's, that's the problem. It, because they started in a vacuum, you have to go back and understand what was happening four centuries earlier. And what happened in those four centuries, as I was briefly alluding, is three quarters of the original Christian world was conquered by Islam through v extreme violence of the sort that ISIS, the Islamic State, which epitomized in the modern era, you know, atrocities, they, the, what those caliphates and sultanates did in the 7th and 8th centuries make ISIS look like camp, you know, Boy Scouts, believe it or not. The, I mean, the, the sheer horror that was inflicted in Egypt, all of North Africa, in Syria, and by greater Syria, of course, I mean including modern-day states such as Israel and Lebanon and Jordan. and Jordan, of course, all that was Christian, you know. And, uh, and then you get later, you know, the, you have a later iteration of Islamic jihadism, which is when the Turks take over. And now they pour in and start slaughtering the Armenians in the 11th century. And this is actually what leads to the Crusades. In the, in, before the, the Pope Urban II called for the First Crusade in 1095, in the years before it, the Seljuk Turks, again under the banner of Islam and the banner of Jihad, were running amok in Asia Minor and just slaughtering, according to contemporary primary sources, tens of thousands of Christians. Uh, by contemporary so you mean eyewitnesses? Eyewitness sources, to, written at the time. To the, the slaughter right. by the Seljuk Turks. Right, the Seljuk Turks and the, and the, and the general Muslims, uh, armies that would join them from all ranks. Um, in one city in Armenia, Ani, which I think was the capital at the time, it was known as the city of a thousand churches, and the Turks, Turks burned every single church. And they led out to, uh, into slavery tens of thousands of women and children. So that's the sort of horrific stuff, like I say, ISIS, but on steroids, that was going on in the years before the Crusades. And also, in the Holy Land itself, which has, had always had pilgrims coming from Europe, the same Seljuk Turks, and even though the Muslims before them, the Arabs and the different 
uh, caliphates and sultanates before the Turks had been abusing all the European pilgrims in various degrees. But mm -hmm. the Seljuks began into a very, in a very vile way. Um, again, the sources, I don't want to get into it because it's very graphic what they would do to the women, to the children who were coming on these pilgrimages. So that's what actually <laughs> propelled the First Crusade. That is what Pope Urban was talking about. It was about, it was literally loving God with all your heart and loving your fellow man. God, because the Holy Sepulchre and the Holy Land was under the uh, control of a pagan people that were destroying it. The, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built on the site of the resurrection. Before that, a Fatimid Caliph from Egypt completely raised it to the ground and destroyed it. Yeah, so, Hakim. So, Hakim, yeah, who they call the Mad Caliph, though he wasn't actually. That was policy that he was following. During his reign, according to Muslim sources, he destroyed 30,000 churches in Egypt and Syria, which also, again, gives you a reflection of how Christian that region was prior to the advent of Islam. Yeah, again, Christians have little idea. I've been yeah. able to travel through the region, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, even in the deserts of Israel, there were monasteries yeah. and churches. Yeah. You know, you, you can still see the ruins of them, uh, the, and these were all wiped out. Yeah. Now, the pr one of the things too, I think, to help folks understand, how did this conquest occur so quickly from a, a group of uh, Arabs in the Arabian Peninsula? Uh, how did and one of the problems was uh, an long time feud of about 700 years between Persians the and Persians and the Romans yeah. had gotten them into a death lock and they had been battering each each other and then in the after they had, they had this massive war and the, the Romans won but you know at a great cost then right. it was easy for the Muslims to conquer Persia and, uh, yeah. and much of the Christian right. Right. empire. That to me I think is one of the most plausible and, and uh, theories because the question you ask, how did these rapid conquests happen mm -hmm. by essentially um, an, uh, an unimpressive force of Bedouin Arabs who were never much of a military threat to the great empires right. that surrounded them. Um, other, uh, if you ask the Muslim narrative of course it's because God was on their side. Yes. And if you ask yes. the Christians of the time it was because God was punishing the Christians for their sins, mm -hmm. the way he would punish ancient Israel by mm -hmm. raising up uh, you know, different tribes, attack it. That was their logic. But there's different scientific, more modern theories that this desiccation of Arabia forced masses of Muslims uh, to suppose, or Arabs to supposedly migrate. I don't necessarily agree with that. But the, the, the point, I do think it was because the two empires, the Sasanian Persian Empire, and the Byzantines, or as we call them, the Eastern Roman Empire, um, they had, as you were saying, they had fierce fighting back and forth, and and it was and, and very dramatic stories with this, the, you know, the theft of the Holy Cross and, mm -hmm. and the return of it under Heracles. Right. Uh, it, the the other issue too, I think that was a, a factor in some parts, especially North Africa, a number of Christians were various types of heretics mm -hmm. right and they had watered especially watering down Christ right. uh, you had lots of Aryan heretics uh, the uh, vandals right. the vandals had taken much of right. North Africa they denied that Jesus is God the Son 
when the Muslims came, it didn't seem all that different. They deny that Jesus is God. Right. Right. So, but they esteem him as a prophet and a holy person. Exactly, and he's virgin yeah, birth. Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, they don't call him Jesus in the Quran. They call him Isa, Isa yeah. uh, which is, as you know, actually Jesus in Arabic spelled backwards. Hmm. I don't know if you'd noticed that. No, I haven't. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, That's rather diabolical. The, 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 <laughs> it's the same consonants uh, in reverse. Uh. You're right. uh, but uh, be that as it may, they said, well, it seems okay. And, and people went along with a lot of it. And many Christians converted to Islam. Many were forced to convert, and many were killed. And many women were forced to become the slaves mm -hmm. and give birth to, yeah. uh, as slaves, they had to. Right give birth to Muslim children. Right. So this changed the world. Absolutely. And it changed it. And that's why it's just ironic. What, what I find interesting is, you know, with the rise of the Islamic State and modern day Islamic terrorism, but especially the Islamic State, which really captured people's imagination with all the depravities and atrocities that they engaged in. And the overwhelming message from the West was this is not Islam, that this is a complete aberration and these men don't you know, at all represent how Muslims were. If you dig in the sources, like I did, the historical, again, eyewitness accounts and primary sources from contemporary um, witnesses and writers and chroniclers, it is ISIS, but on a massive scale, because now it's not just some ragtag terrorists who are in their pickup trucks with little you know, rifles running around, as we saw you know, in Afghanistan, the Taliban. This was the caliphate, this was the sultanate. All the manpower it had was sent forth to do precisely what the Islamic State did and says it has to do, which was to conquer and obliterate and subjugate Christians, Jews, any non-pagan, of course, or any non-pagans, um, uh, basically kuffar, all of them, kafirs, infidels, as we would call them. And that's exactly what happened. Then the systematic destruction of churches. I just told you one caliph, 30,000 churches, but that was a constant. So it's amazing because people think that Islam historically, because this is how it's taught now in college, just spread through trade. And people just found it such an appealing, simple message compared to Christianity, and they all just converted in droves. And that is just complete bunk. That's a lie. Yeah. Okay? It, it, it is more like what ISIS did. And ISIS is actually the, is walking in the footsteps of centuries worth of caliphs and sultanates and emirates and so forth. Yeah. So that's the truth. And if, if ISIS is the final culmination and in continuity with these fellows, then not only does that tell us about the past, it tells us about the future. Well, see, one of the things I um, thought was important in your book is that with the, di the different chapters, you begin by setting the stage. This was the terror. I mean, for one thing, the Quran itself says bring terror yeah, it's upon yeah. the, those who are infidels. Strike terror into the hearts of those, including those who say Jesus is the Son of God, meaning Christians. Right, right. Okay. And, and It's pretty explicit, in other yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so that, that's what they did. And yeah. you, you give the deed, and this is one of the other important things. Folks need to understand, a good historian doesn't share his feelings but shares his sources. That's what you've done. Yeah. 
this is essential to go back to eyewitness accounts right. early, and it's consistent. Uh-huh. It's not just, well, I think one guy had a rumor and said that this, no, uh-huh. it's consistent. And you bring this out for different parts of the world, whether it's in Albania mm-hmm. and you know Turkey and Greece, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in the the Holy Land during the Crusades, and whether the Muslims are Arabs or Persians or, or, North or African Moors, Moors or Turks or Tatars, Mongols, it was the same mentality. They quoted the same verses from the Quran to justify the violence and the subjugation. It was not no. an ethnic no. issue. Transcended. Yeah, it was it's the ummah. And it's and it's something that you see, when you read other histories mm-hmm. of other parts of the world, like India, uh, what Tamerlane did and, and other invaders of India, 80 million <laughs> Indians were killed. Pyramids during, of skulls everywhere. D- during the uh, Muslim attacks on India. Yeah. Uh, it was very serious. So it, it's something that comes not from, you know, uh, uh, some ethnic issue. No. Territorial issue. It, it's, it no. is an issue of an idea. Right. And the Quran teaches mm-hmm. you terrorize those who are kufar, Latina uh, kafaru. And then it also says, cut off their heads and their fingers in Surah 8, verse 12. Yeah. So, uh, and pl- lots of other verses uh, mm-hmm. indicate this. This is follow- following the text yeah. of the Quran. Yeah. Would that be fair? Absolutely fair. And one, one way to underscore this from the book is in the very earliest chapters, because it goes chronologically, I show you in one of the very earliest battles in Syria around 636, the Muslim captain met with the Christian Byzantine captain to parlay before the war. And basically his, what he, his logic for why the Muslims were waging war was jihadist. You're an infidel, you have three choices, convert, you know, be, to become a Muslim or be a dhimmi, second class citizen, pay tribute, live under subjugation or the sword. And he quotes Muhammad in the Quran, et cetera. Okay. Yes, Surah 9. So yeah, Surah, Surah, yeah, yeah. Surah 9, 5, and 929 are known as Ayat al-Sayf, the, the, the verses of the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other verses. But now, that's just one example from the first chapter. Now, fast forward to the last chapter, and you're gonna, I'm, I discuss a little bit about the United States' first war as a nation, which happens to be with Muslims. Um, the Barbary Wars, right around 1800, and again in 1815. And what had happened is American vessels were being attacked and plundered by North African um, raiders, yeah, uh, pirates. pirates, and yeah. that's how the Americans understood yeah. it. They didn't even know anything about Muslim Islam because th- these were the enlightened folks, Thomas Jefferson and his ilk. And um, th- anyway, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams met with the uh, ambassador of, of Barbary and asked him, "Why are you doing this? Why can't we be friends? You know, why are you attacking our ships, enslaving our sailors, torturing them? Because it, the sources again of what happened to these American sailors is uh, pretty lamentable." And that man responded just like the guy from chapter one. And he just said, because in the Quran, you're an infidel, you're a non-believer, you have three choices. You have to either convert or pay tribute or we kill you, et cetera, et cetera. So that is pretty unwavering. That's 12 centuries right there. And different peoples and different, so much had changed in the world. And the same impetus, same logic to explain Islamic violence vis-a-vis Christians or non-Muslims had not changed at all. And it was still textual and scriptural. In the face of these ongoing attacks 
And, and, and again, the, you give descriptions from those sources. And, you know, again, it's stuff that, you know, the readers can take a look at and understand what happened mm -hmm. and motivated this. But you then describe a number of leaders who said, Halas, it's enough, that this is where it stops, and I will be part of putting a stop to the violence. As we said earlier, the Crusaders didn't go to convert the Muslims, mm -hmm. but to stop the violence. And in Spain, it wasn't to convert the Muslims, it was to stop the violence. And this is consistent throughout mm -hmm. each one of your chapters. Yeah. Uh, the, I'd really actually like to elaborate about Spain because there's so many lessons in that. Yeah. Spain, you know, in a nutshell, was conquered, of course, by Islam, as I mentioned, in the 8th century, and the Christians were holed up. Uh, the, you know, the descendants of the Visigoths in the northwest quadrant of the Iberian Peninsula in the mountains, mm -hmm. and then century after century in, in the context of the Reconquista, Reconquest, they battled with the Muslims and slowly advanced southward, reclaiming Spain, okay? And then by 1490, uh, in the late 1490s, Elizabeth and Ferdinand had even conquered the final bastion of Islam, which was Granada, southernmost tip. Oh, yeah. it was 1492. Well, 1492 is when they actually finally evict them, but before yeah. that, they had, I, I believe, conquered it and they told the Muslims, it was now half a million Muslims because all of them were holed up there. You can continue your religion, you can continue practicing Sharia essentially, and just live in peace with us. But every single time that they could, they tried to subvert and attack and ally with the Barbary pirates and the Ottomans to try to subvert against again, uh, Spain again back to Islam. So, and they would attack random attacks on Christians. So long story short, that is why, um, so they came up, the crown came up with the, okay, these people have a viral hatred for us because of their religion and because the Islamic religion does teach in the Quran, you must hate, that's the word, have hatred and enmity for all who are not Muslims. And it even says in the Quran, even if they're your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children, you have to hate them, okay? So now keep that in mind. So that is why they wanted to convert them to Christianity because it was a matter of you either become a Christian and therefore hopefully the hatred goes away because you're one of us or you leave. They all converted under, because of a fatwa, which uh, it, it exonerated the concept of takeya in Arabic, which means since you're being pressured to convert, you can all convert, you can all get baptized, you can all have the Eucharist, go to church, etc. But in your heart, stay a Muslim and when you can, try to subvert Islam again, uh, subvert Spain. And that's what half a million Muslims did to the point that clerics and Spaniards about a hundred years later were complaining saying these people are better Christians than us. They are more punctual to church. They're there every day. And then at home they would find out they were preaching jihad and hatred, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what led to the inquisition. That is actually why it was because they wanted to find out, well, who's the real Christian and who's actually faking it. And when it all, when it all came in the end, that's when they just evicted them because there was no way to tell the truth. So, and this principle, I mention it and I labor it. Explain taqiyya. Taqiyya, which goes back to the Quran, I believe Quran 328. It says, you know, do not befriend the non-Muslim, again, have hatred for them, unless you do it by way of precaution, okay? And the, the, the jurists and the doctrinaires and exegetes have understood that to mean, well, and Muhammad has uh, sayings such as, you know, we smile in the face of the infidel, but we curse them in our, in our heart. So a long story short, in sum, the doctrine means as a, you can maintain your Islamic 
identity and hatred for the non-Muslim, et cetera, et cetera. But you can do whatever, including, like I said, communion, act like a Christian, pray to Christ, uh, and so forth, as long as it's fake and insincere and you're doing it as a stratagem to, uh, you know, eventually, eventually take over. To take over. Mm -hmm. um, and that principle is still alive today, by the way. Mm -hmm. And that's why I belabor it a little bit, because I believe this is going on right now, especially in places like Europe, where you have a lot of Muslims who are not radical jihadists, but they're also not what they claim to be, and their numbers are growing every year. Um, so it's, it's very similar, and this is why I think all these histories are so important to learn from, because they're still applicable today. Yeah. One of the, uh, I, I think one of the applicable things is to look at, again, the main characters of your chapters in this kind of context and how they had to make certain decisions to become courageous and try to prevent this happening. Sometimes they could, sometimes they couldn't. Right. Sometimes they won, sometimes not. Right, right. Tell us about a couple. I, I, I think um, you mentioned the Crusades. Uh, why don't you begin there with the Crusades? Sure, I begin one of, one of the, I have, I, I focus on eight characters, um, and there's definitely more. And the reason I picked, I, and I explain this a lot because some people say, well, why didn't you mention so-and-so? Because in my, the previous book, Sword and Scimitar, has a lot of the other guys, so I didn't want to be redundant. But uh, Godfrey de Bouillon, uh, the, the, the Duke, and I also don't want to be a spoiler for anyone who wants to read the book, so I don't want to give too much about the, their lives. But he was a, I, I think I can, the best way I can describe it to you is I can tell you a lot of what these men were. A lot of them were nobles, kings, some were emperors, and they sacrificed everything, including their lives often for a cause that today people would laugh at or think is you know, xenophobic or you know, Islamophobic, whatever. But it was a very real cause. It was defending their faith, defending their cultures, defending their family, their homeland. And in the case of the Crusades, see, people always point at the Crusades because they think it's easy to demonize the, the, the Crusaders because after all, you have, you have Europeans going into the Middle East, into the Muslim land, so they're the invaders. But it's not the case, because as I mentioned, even those Europeans understood that the Holy Land and Egypt and all these regions were Christian before. Yeah. They were, so it was according to just war theory and its stringent strictures, it was still legitimate to go and wage war in, across the sea, because that was Christian territory. And Christians living there, the indigenous ones, were being tortured and persecuted. Um, so that, too, was seen as a defensive form of warfare, definitely in the context of just war. But all these men... And uh, the first one I begin with the, with the First Crusade. And this, so this is in the 10 hundreds or 11th century. And the last one is in the 15th century. And they're different men, you know, some in Spain. I have uh, in Sp Spaniards, French, Franks. Um, and then, of course, I focus on the Balkans. That's the latest. And that's, again, and that's the one that few people know about because people know about King Richard a little bit. They know his name. They, they've heard of the Cid. Even though what they know is not what I have in the book. They know, right. they know caricatures and just things that are not really even accurate. Yeah, um, even the movie El Cid is it's not the down. quality. It's not. It's, it's not. not the quality. No. You've got good information yeah. here. Yeah. Tell us about Skanderbeg. So, yeah, so I have a bunch of uh, three um, uh, Balkanites, uh, men from the Balkans. And, one, and it's ironic because probably the least known is the most heroic of all. Or really, he was the one that was actually celebrated all throughout Europe, um, including Western Europe, and he was Albanian. 
And even the United States Congress, and I forget, I wrote it in the book, some, I think 2004 or five. they actually issued some kind of commemoration of his life saying he had saved Europe from the Ottomans, the Muslims. Mm -hmm. And long story short, you know, and to give you an idea of what these men went through, he was a young Albanian Christian prince taken with his brothers by the Muslims, the Ottomans, because that was a practice. They would take the strongest, healthiest, most aristocratic um, Christians and as children, and then they would convert, forcibly convert them into Muslims and turn them into jihadists extraordinaire. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Called they, they, janissaries. janissaries, exactly, right. which means uh, the new soldiers right. in, in the Turk, Turkish language. And then they would unleash them back on the Christians. Uh, these now indoctrinated, you know, uh, early examples of Stockholm Syndrome, uh, you know, characters because they loved the Sultan who had taken them when they were children right. and forced them and, and they tried to fight for him and they'd sacrifice their lives. So he was taken amongst, with his brothers, all his brothers ended up getting killed. He rose to the highest echelons of the military because of his prowess and he was very athletic, strong, right. courageous. And he, he was showered with all these honors. But when the moment came, I think two decades later, he was able to break away and run back to Albania where he completely defied the Ottomans. And then, and, and he just, and the amount of men he had at his side were so few and weak and outnumbered and don't have the proper weaponry. And the Ottoman Empire, of course, is a vast behemoth. And they launched for a quarter of a century, raid after raid, jihad after jihad, oftentimes with 10 to 20 amounts of numbers against his small force. And he engaged in guerrilla warfare and he beat them continuously and kept them out. Of Albania, and it's these stories are as I as I mentioned, you know, if, if truth is stranger than fiction, these in this book, these stories, truth is more dramatic than any movie I've yeah. seen. Of course, no Hollywood will never make a movie about these men because they're Christians and they're fighting for Christianity and they're right. fighting against Muslims, and that throws a wrench in the entire narrative. But it would be a fantastic. Would, I think so. Movie. Any one of these chapters could be a blockbuster. And you know, uh, Hunyadi. John Hunyadi, yeah, the Hungarian, John Hunyadi is a Hungarian, Hungarian uh, governor um, from Transylvania originally, and he also, uh, th these are the men, so Skanderberg and Hunyadi are, are probably the least known. If you mention this to your average, even educated American, they don't, they never heard of him. But he's another man who was, he, he became wealthy and powerful on his own, but he, he was interesting because he would take the war to the Turks. Uh, usually the Turks would invade and Europeans would run away and try to maintain the line but he would surprise the Turks by actually launching raids on them. And it started working and terrifying the Turks. Um, and then, so he has his many adventures as well. And basically the, the irony, and I don't wanna single them out too much, but many of these guys, like I said, they were rich, they had a lot to live for, they didn't have to do this. And most of them died in their 40s or 50s, or even younger, just from the warfare. And they were so committed. St. Louis, for example, you know, think about him. Yeah, and you know, this, uh just a, one of the other things you often hear about the Crusades. Well, this was second sons of uh, yeah, nobles yeah, yeah, and kings yeah. who went over there to try to get a kingdom. Yeah. That wasn't the that case. That theory has been debunked. Yeah, that's yeah. just false. Yeah, yeah. And instead it was people said, no, we're all at risk. Yeah. And we have to be the strong men who stand up and protect more from more of this kind of truly terror yeah. being brought down upon us. Right. The Quran says to bring terror of, in their hearts yeah. of, of those who mm -hmm. are infidels. And they stood up against the terror. Yeah. And uh, again, didn't really seek to conquer the Arab lands. That didn't happen 
until the modern empires tried to conquer the Turkish Empire. Right, yeah. But colonialism in this in the, those days, it was defending Christians from attack. Yeah. This is an a, extremely important thing. I th I think with it, uh, to to look at these different examples of leadership, and see, can we also learn what it means to have the cardinal virtue of courage to stand up for what's right not to steal from anybody mm -hmm. but to stand up and protect what's right and the the weak and the innocent this is a key thing and i, I enjoyed your book we have to take a little break we're going to come back in a couple of minutes and if you have any questions or comments we invite you to call in and be part of our discussion. So we'll be right back. We are discussing a book uh, entitled Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. It was written by our guest, uh, Raymond Ibrahim, and you can get it at EWTNRC.com, the religious catalog. It is item number 38203, 38203. Uh, so we encourage you to get that. Um, I think, for one thing, it reads very well. It's, you know, the, 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 the stories are well told. And you can check on the footnotes. That's one of the great things about this kind of a book. If you're willing to do some homework, you, the, the guidance to get the footnotes and go to the original sources is listed there for you. And you can do that kind of work or just get the basic message and understand what was going on and who these great heroes were. Are you ready for some questions? Absolutely. Let's start off with Thomas from the great state of Tennessee. Thomas, what can we do for you? Yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, uh, with everything, Father, that you and Mr. Ibrahim have discussed, I have a fundamental question. I would like to ask is it possible for Christianity and Islam to coexist? Okay. Uh, it is possible if Christians have the upper hand and uh, behave with wisdom and prudence. It wouldn't be possible if, Christ if Muslims have the upper hand because Islam teaches. It is an imperative. It is, it is a part of the religion, the jihad imperative. You have to go and conquer when you can and subjugate the non-Muslim infidel. That's just part of the religion. It's, uh, it, it's, it's all over the doctrines in the Quran, the Hadith, and that teaching has manifested itself, as we're discussing, throughout centuries of history, unwaveringly. So it's, 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 it's just like saying, uh, you know, Muslims have to pray and fast and, and alms and zakat and go to, go to Mecca. Uh, to many Muslims, jihad is considered the sixth pillar. But even if you don't give it that nomenclature, it's still 
a fundamental teaching of Islamic, uh, of, of the Islamic worldview. And moreover, beyond that, it's not just the physical violence of jihad, it's this continuous teaching of having enmity for non-Muslims. Okay, mm -hmm. this is all throughout the Quran. As I mentioned, calling on Muslims to, uh, you have, if you, to love Allah is you have to hate those who do not believe in Allah and fight and subjugate them. So Islam would have to be remade in order for it to live peacefully with others or others are more powerful than it and they can keep it defanged and in a weakened state. Mm -hmm. um, so that's also possible. But for the religion itself, as I said, doctrinally, historically, it is made clear abundantly, unwaveringly, and continuously that no, it is hostile to the other. It is fundamentally tribalistic, okay? The genius of Muhammad is that he took tribalism, which was part of his culture, 7th century Arabia, and he deified it, okay? So now it, it's no longer, tribalism is what it is, and it's a negative force if you want to live amongst other people, diversity and all that, it's, it's anathema to it. But he made it now, it's part of the religion. So tribalism, hating the other, praying off the other, subjugating the other, pleases God. It's not just a normal impulse uh, that humans have and that we need to work on and suppress to become uh, you know, more uh, universal with humans in a Christian sense, for example. It's been deified. So that's why I think tribalism is especially rife amongst Muslims and any other non-Western populations. We have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from uh, uh, Deering, Georgia. Good to have you. Welcome. And what's your question? Uh, my question is, uh, Mohammed had a daughter whose name was Fatima. Mm -hmm. And then years later, uh, when the, uh, in the port the por there was a Portuguese uh, nobleman who married a princess an Islamic princess whose name was also Fatima, and, and he loved her so much that he named the town he lived in Fatima, Fatima, Portugal. Now, way up into the 20th century, Our Lady appears in Fatima and is calling Christians to repentance. Do you think maybe there will be a, in God's plan and through the intercession of the Blessed Mother, uh, the the uh, Islam, the Islamic peoples would maybe come back and reconvert to Christianity? Do you think there's a tie there? Well, I know that there's a lot of uh, conversions from Islam to Christianity, and they're all, they all have similar stories of dreams of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely something going on in the Muslim world with God and conversions, and I think that's excellent. Um, but as far as the particulars of the Fatima in Portugal, I'll defer to the Good Father. Yeah, it, it's, uh, what you said mm -hmm. is, is correct, mm -hmm. that uh, it was a Portuguese nobleman who married a uh, princess mm -hmm. from uh, a Muslim family. She became a Catholic. He named the town after her. It was called mm -hmm. Fatima. Uh, Fatima was, is a common name mm -hmm. among yeah. Muslim women right. because it was not only... Um, Muhammad's daughter, but it was a much beloved daughter, right. and uh, from her, she and her husband Ali, yeah, it's uh, that's the beginning of the, the Shia. Shiite right. uh, form of Islam, mm -hmm. whereas his wife Aisha and a lot of her mm -hmm. relatives uh, were the source of the Sunnis. Right. Uh, they fought against each other <laughs> uh, in, in battle. Um, so. Uh, that that's that's all correct, and you know, I, I do remember reading how 
um, the image of Our Lady of Fatima did catch a lot of attention of some, you know, Muslims, especially in India, uh, where there are, it's one of the largest Muslim populations in the world mm -hmm. that a lot of folks don't realize because yeah, yeah. we associate it with Hinduism. Hinduism, of course, but there's also an enormous mm -hmm. uh, population of Muslims there. And they're fascinated that it was Our Lady of Fatima. And they would sometimes ask about that. And, and in fact, in the, uh, I, I know in Lebanon and in uh, uh, Palestine, uh, Muslim women will frequently go to shrines of the Blessed Mother. Uh, there, there's not yeah. there's, uh, Egypt too, I oh, think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they'll ask Mary to pray for right. them. The, there's not much of a role for women. Uh, the, the the Quran rarely dis, uh, doesn't right. describe what paradise for women is like. It, it's it's not clear. Right. Uh, and so a number of Muslim women will go to Christian shrines of Our Lady to seek her prayer, especially if they're childless or yeah. a sick child or something. Um, they don't become Christian, but mm -hmm. they do seek her right. intercession. That's very common. We have uh, another caller. Augustino, you're in the great state of Ohio. What can we do for you? Yes, uh, with uh, what you are just saying, you know, that uh, how we Catholic Christians can help. Uh, talking about Our Lady of Fatima, you know, Mm -hmm. Bishop Sheen, you know, yes. it's in uh, the role of women in, in uh, Islam. Uh, Muhammad got exposed to Nestorian Christianity because they were married. The woman owner of a caravan had a cousin who was a Nestorian priest, right? And they got married by him. So he got exposed to Christianity and the Nestorian heresy. So then, you know, I mean, all the distortions that happen and whatever, but the bottom line is that they are Christians, you know, and with all the deformations, you know, what can we do? And related to Fatima and Bishop Shim, what can we do as Catholics beyond praying, fasting, the conversion, you know, to help? Like maybe national-wise, like... Uh, Indonesia. Yeah. Okay. Let let me uh, respond. Well, let no, uh, no, no. You, well, you once you start, th there's a Coptic priest from Egypt, Zachariah Butrus. Exactly. Yeah. Father Zachariah Butrus, mm -hmm. whom you can find on the internet. He's been very effective in explaining Islam, and refuting many. Muslim uh, claims and doctrines, and many Muslims pay attention yeah. to his arguments. Is that not correct? Absolutely, and and it's you know it's instructive how he does it. So first of all, he obviously has advantages. He reads Arabic, so he can you know delve deep into Arabic sources, Islamic jurisprudence, and Quran and Hadith, and so he can he can extrapolate things that you know a few Westerners can, if they, especially if they don't know the languages. So, but what he, but what I, what, and I've watched this many times. What I find um, very refreshing is the approach he takes. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, appease or humor Muslims. He just, as he says, a cold, a cold, cold hard slap. You know, he just says it the way it is, and it's insulting. 
and it's offensive. But that's kind of how Muslims think and how they act. This is how their clerics are. <laughs> so he acts like a Muslim cleric, but he's a Christian. He's aggressive. Um, he doesn't hold back. He mocks. Okay, all the things that <laughs> here in the West we should never do or else you'll get blown up or something like that. Um, and so he is, in fact, very effective and because, A, he knows, he knows the material, he knows the arguments. He, he knows Islam better he knows than their language, the vast majority of Muslims. Literally and figuratively. Yeah. So he knows it literally, of course, but he knows, it, he knows how to talk in, in a way that really, and last I understood there was a fatwa on his head for several million uh, from Al-Qaeda back, because he goes way back. Yeah, uh, but I heard that they offered more money to kill him than America had offered for the arrest or killing of yeah. bin Laden, about yeah. $5 million yes. more. Yes, yes. Uh, $55 million. So, so that's how effective. Um, so definitely a lot of these Arab-speaking Christians and converts to Christianity, but I would say he's at the fore of it, are making a lot of inroads by just making Muslims think. The thing about Islam and Muslim countries, as you know, the blasphemy law, it's, it's, there's such a strong censorship that you can't, even if you're a Muslim and you, wanna, you have a question about Muhammad or about the Quran, it behooves you to keep it to yourself because if it gets out, you might get, you, you might get in trouble with the law or worse, the mob. You know, so, so that's why, in, in a way, the, the satellites and the Internet, the, their advent has been very advantageous because it allows people like him, Father Zakaria, to be anonymous and live in a secure mm -hmm. location, presumably, and say, say what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and there are Christian uh, groups, uh, I know some of the Catholics uh, in the Middle East, who make available copies of the New Testament in Arabic because yeah. it's illegal yeah. to sell the New Testament mm -hmm. in bookstores yeah. in most Muslim countries and in Saudi Arabia you can't even bring your own Bible in this is forbidden uh, so uh, you know you just can't and so this is something that uh, you know they're what, they've mm -hmm. been finding ways to get uh, the Bible in there and let people see mm -hmm. what the Bible says and then deal with these arguments in ways that um, and then with something you mentioned the people who are having dreams of Jesus mm. our Lord calling them to become Christian and sometimes of the Blessed Virgin Mary mm -hmm. calling them to become Christian this is it's an amazing phenomenon that's widespread and it's not just in one country it's in all these Muslim nations from Morocco yeah. to um, mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, East Asia yeah sub-Saharan Africa yep um, going back to a final comment about what you were saying, you know, a well-known cleric, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, um, who passed away, he was Egyptian, but he was, he, regularly he'd be ranked as one of the most popular authoritative clerics in the, in the modern world. He died a few years ago. He actually on record said that if it was not for the apostasy law, which, mean, which is in Islam, if you break away from Islam, well, you could get killed. Yeah. You could be executed or, right. or other things, imprisoned. Uh, ostracized, but being killed is, he said, if it wasn't for that, Islam would have ceased to be. Yeah. And so that, that, that right there is a reflection of how that this religion only stands and exists by censorship and force, beginning with its own uh, followers, not and, just others. And, and even in a place as strict as Iran, there are millions of converts, yeah. uh, about yeah. six million. Yeah. Uh, but they have to be quiet, mm -hmm. you know, and in many of these countries, but it's going on slowly, yeah. slowly.
We have another caller. Paul, you're in the great state of New Hampshire. What can we do for you? Bob, I mentioned Raymond. I got a serious question regarding the climate in America. It's been brought to my attention that the radical left seems to be embracing Islam because of their hate for the Judeo-Christian foundation of America. So you're embracing a religion which I find to be, it's not a religion of peace. It's very male chauvinistic. But yet the radical left, left who criticizes Christianity and Judaism is embracing the enemy of America. Yeah. Um, I agree. And um, I've been asked this and I've thought about it and I've written about it. And basically it comes down to a simple principle. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. And so for these leftists... I think their primary enemy is Christianity, Christian ethics, mores, Christian culture. That is their number one enemy. And something seen as, uh, you know, relatively innocuous just because of numbers, especially in America as Islam, um, <clears throat> it's still, of course, small minority here in, in the United States. They don't, and it's like an exotic religion that they don't think is going to catch on. So they empower it because it's seen as a hostile force to Christianity, because it really is. Um, historically, again, as I mentioned, but also in the modern era right now. So in Europe, in all these leftist nations where they have masses of migrants, not a single day goes by without several churches getting attacked or having feces smeared on them. Or, or, or last Christmas, as usual, in Germany and Austria and Italy, France, Scandinavia, um, so many nativity scenes had their heads beheaded. Where? Always in areas that have large Muslim migrant populations. Okay, so the animosity, again, is there. And I believe, so it's, you know, obviously <laughs> extreme radical patriarchal Islam on the one hand, and then extreme radical leftism, liberalism, which is the two don't meet. They are bedfellows because they both want the same enemy destroyed, is what I believe. And that's why you see them, you know, even though they, just, they, they think about it, these leftists um, who are freaking out because a Christian won't f bake a cake for a homosexual party or wedding or whatever they describe it as, are siding with Muslims who, when they find homosexuals, throw them off um, a roof, according to Islamic principles. So again, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's never been about the principles. It's about who can help me eliminate my primary enemy. Yeah, yeah I think that's the case. And I, I think it's worth noting um, something that uh, has recently come out. Um, this is not from the medieval past. We still see that, uh, for instance, Nigeria mm. is the country that has the largest number of attacks on people for their religion. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, Muslims attacking Christians uh, since the year 2000, the last mm -hmm. 24, 25 years, 62,000 Nigerian Christians have been killed for their faith. They're martyrs. Mm -hmm. they're, they're killed by Boko Haram, the Fulani, and other groups, uh, oftentimes financed by outside governments, mm -hmm. the wealthy people from the oil-rich states finance this and you know you know 60,000 martyrs 
just in the last 25 years. We have to keep in mind that the age of martyrdom is not in the past. No. It is now. In Egypt, your family's uh, uh, home country, um, there are still lots mm -hmm. of Christians who get killed yeah. uh, for their faith yeah. because they're Christians. This is not something far away. We saw in Iraq, you know, that ISIS just was, you know, vicious toward uh, Iraq and in Syria. Uh, they're vicious towards Christians. It's not in the distant past. But the relevance, I think, in, in part of your your book is to say, this is if this is still going on, we have to act with courage and become courageous people. Right. That, I think, is the key. And to see these very specific ways in which they were overwhelmed at times, but were courageous. Absolutely. And this, I th this yeah, is a good lesson. That's, I think that's the main point, um, comparing and contrasting the lives of these men with our so-called leaders, our fearless Western leaders. Mm -hmm. These men, as mentioned, they just, they saw the problem and they fought and they did everything. And I think one of the things that, are, that especially Christians need to get over is the idea that I think there's been so much emphasis placed in the modern era by powers that are not Christian and that are hostile to Christian to promote a Christian idea, namely that Christians must be doormats. I call it, you know, uh, doormat Christianity, which means if you're a good Christian, you don't judge, you turn the other cheek, you certainly don't fight back, you don't go to war and you don't do anything. And to a great extent, I think a lot of Christians uh, naturally gravitate to that because they're making a virtue out of a vice, cowardice. Yeah. And they're basically saying, well, this is the way it is. But if you, and I discuss it uh, a lot in the book, but the idea that Jesus was a pacifist is completely contrary. No. I mean, we find all sorts of, uh, the centurion is one good example that went to him and you know, he, he healed his servant. Yeah. Jesus, after healing someone or doing a miracle, the first thing he would say is repent, repent. He didn't say that to this man who was the head of a military and who presumably had killed lots of people because it was understood you needed authorities who engage in violence to keep peace, peace. Yeah. okay? If you want to find out more about Raymond Ibrahim's work, go to RaymondIbrahim.com. His book that we discussed tonight is Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. It's item 38203 at EWTNRC.com. Thank you for coming all this way to be with us. Appreciate it. And may the Lord bless all of you and cause his face to shine upon you and bring you peace in your hearts and in all of your lives. Pray the Lord bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, this network is brought to you by you. Mother was inspired by our Lord that instead of commercials and stuff, you would keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you.